A day's battle would make short work of these impudent and enterprising savages. Or at least that was according to Lieutenant Colonel Frank Wheaton, a man who, frankly, should have known better. After all, the officer first donned a uniform 18 years prior when he received his commission, a duty that saw him face off against the Cheyenne on the Kansas frontier. And then came the Civil War, Bull Run, Antietam, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg. Wheaton was there for all of them and commended for his actions. So one would assume that the lieutenant colonel was far too experienced to underestimate his opponents. That he should have known that a well-dug-in desperate man with a rifle and a will to fight, especially when fighting for his family, could put up one hell of a mighty defense. But I wasn't there, and I'm not going to play armchair general on this one. All I know is that when the smoke cleared on that January morning in 1873, at least 35 soldiers lay dead with nearly as many wounded. And the Modoc nation had shown just how impudent and enterprising they could be. That it would take much more than a day's worth of battle to rein in these determined fighters. Turns out this conflict would last quite a while. And when you take into account the number of people killed coupled with the dollars expended per enemy, this lesser known of the so-called Indian Wars would be one of the most expensive ever fought on U.S. soil. One which pitted just 50 to 60 Modoc warriors against nearly a thousand U.S. troops and volunteers. Who was Captain Jack? Who were the Modoc? And what caused the Modoc War? Go ahead and get your peace pipe out for this one. You're probably going to need it. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Captain Jack was born into the Modoc people sometime around the year 1837, near Tule Lake in present-day Northern California. And this was the land the Modoc had called home for God only knows how long, at least a millennium if not more. Just to give you an idea of how far back the Modoc go in this region, there are oral stories passed down among them and their relatives turned enemies to claimeth, describing what we think was the Mount Mazama volcano eruption nearly 8,000 years ago. So yeah, I think it's safe to say that Modoc roots run deep in that roughly 5,000 square mile region on the Oregon-California border. Land sandwiched between the Lower Cascades to the west and the Warner Range to the east, providing the Modoc all they needed to flourish. An abundant supply of fish and wild game, roots, acorns, water lily seeds especially were a big staple ingredient for the Modoc that they would grind into a flour or meal. And the tool reeds that grew along the lakes and marshes provided the Modoc with their shelter, living in teepee-like lodges covered in mats made from the hollowed straws. At least they did when it was warmer out. During the winters, they'd reside in pit houses, dugout-type shelter usually about 15 or so feet deep, lined with grass and dirt for insulation, with a ladder up top. Never a very large tribe, most estimates place the Modoc population at around four to 500 souls at about the time of European contact which, for them, was just a few short years before old Captain Jack was born. By the way, his real name wasn't actually Captain Jack. The Modoc leader's given handle was Kintpuash, meaning he who strikes the water brashly. But for the sake of your ears and my mouth, I will stick with Captain Jack. And I do so out of respect. I'm relatively certain I'm not pronouncing Kintpuash correctly, so I'd rather call the man Jack than constantly butcher his real name. Now, as I alluded to a decade prior or so to Jack's birth, British-Canadian fur trader Peter Ogden began doing business with the Klamath, a rival tribe directly north of the Modoc. More trappers and traders would follow, encroaching both on Klamath and Modoc territory. 
and things were okay at first. The natives of the southern Oregon, northern California region obtained firearms and horses from the early trappers and traders, in addition to other highly coveted items, the same sort of trade goods I mentioned in my last episode. Mirrors, metal trinkets, pots, kettles, knives, hatchets, all that good stuff. But you know the old saying, throughout the course of history, when two foreign peoples initially encounter each other, first they fornicate and then they fight. Now, I don't know how much of the former occurred, but as to the latter, there were skirmishes as early as 1834, when a Hudson's Bay fur trapping expedition led by Mikel Lafambois was said to have killed 11 Rogue River natives. Now, these were not Modoc. The Rogue River peoples were a conglomeration of tribes living along the Rogue River Valley in present-day southwestern Oregon, kind of sort of where the city of Ashland now stands. Shortly thereafter, a trapper by the name of Ewan Young an old mentor of Kit Carson's, killed a couple more indigenous in the same area, tribe unknown. Speaking of Carson, he traveled through Modoc and Klamath territory as well in late spring of 1846 while guiding for Captain Fremont. They'd be attacked one evening while camped out on what's now known as Klamath Lake, losing three of their party. This spurred the expedition, along with their Delaware scouts, to launch a counterattack the following day. Finding a Klamath fishing village nearby, the trappers commenced their assault killing 21 supposedly just men. And it didn't stop there. As the group circled the lake, they killed any natives they found in groups of ones and twos. News quickly spread among the various bands of the region, and the explorers were constantly either being attacked or under threat of attack as they worked their way south into the Sacramento Valley. And for what it's worth, at least one historian, David Roberts, believes the war party that initially attacked Carson and Fremont, the one what killed three of their group, wasn't even a Klamath war party the tribe that the expedition ultimately exacted revenge upon. In all likelihood, they were Modoc. Almost assuredly, it was the Modoc who pestered them as they traveled south of Klamath Lake. And what's more, that initial attack may not have been as unprovoked as Carson would later claim. Just a month earlier, Fremont and his men had been further south near present-day Redding, California, when they attacked a large indigenous camp on the Sacramento River. The tribe, thought to be the Wintu people, were absolutely slaughtered. And that's a direct quote from a witness. How about another quote from the man himself, Kit Carson, who said it was a perfect butchery. A perfect butchery, indeed. One that saw at least a hundred, possibly several hundred, natives killed. Many of which were attempting to flee. All because of rumors. Fremont had heard from some locals that a large band of a thousand natives were preparing for an attack on the white settlement, so he and his men simply did a little preemptive killing. When to? Klamath. Rogue River. Hopefully I'm beginning to paint a picture here. I know these are all different tribes, but this is all occurring in that Northern California, Southern Oregon region, all on the outskirts of Modoc land. Hell, while we're at it, I think the Whitman Massacre is worth mentioning as well. Reverend Whitman, who I also briefly mentioned on my last episode, and his wife, along with 11 others, were all killed during an uprising in late November of 1847. Now, this was the Cayuse tribe who did that, and it was several hundred miles away from Modoc territory to the north. Still, though, when it comes to native or white or European relations in the northwest, things were getting hot. Sparse tribal warfare was quickly being replaced with a steady, seemingly nonstop stream of foreigners invading everybody's territory. And they apparently were not welcome. So, as you can see, by the time Captain Jack was learning how to walk and talk, his people were already well accustomed to dealing with the white man and the white man's ways, at least in the form of fur trappers. 
But it wasn't until shortly after the aforementioned incident with Vermont that things really ramped up. Partially thanks to Jesse and Lindsay Applegate, the sibling duo who blazed the Applegate Trail, sometimes referred to as the South Road. We're talking the late 1840s at this point, and there's a full-on westward migration underway. Now, back in them days, there was something called the California Trail that branched off the Oregon Trail at Fort Hall in present-day Idaho. This route would take gold seekers southwest through Nevada and straight to Sutter's Mill, where gold was discovered in 1848, near where Sacramento, California now stands. Well, the Applegate Trail, considered by some to be a safer alternative to the Oregon Trail, branched off the California Trail and went straight through the heart of Modoc land. Right past Tule Lake and the Lost River before crossing the Cascades and winded north towards the Willamette Valley. As you can imagine, this meant more than a few bloody confrontations between the uninvited migrants and the Modoc people. One in particular that sometimes gets left out of the narrative, probably for a good reason, is said to have occurred in September of 1852 when the Modoc struck a wagon train near Tule Lake, killing over 60 people and taking two young girls captive. Maybe. This is one of those it depends on who you ask kind of things. And 60 is the low end when it comes to how many migrants were killed in this particular massacre with no name. Some sources say 65. Another I found claimed 80 and numerous websites, some of them ending with a .gov at the end of their URL, put the number at 90 men, women, and children that the Modoc massacred there on the Applegate Trail in 1852. Or was it 1850? Like I said, it depends on who you ask. I did a bit more digging, and it appears that the location in question is a place known as Bloody Point, just a few miles south of the Oregon border on what's now Highway 139, near the eastern shore of Tule Lake, where the trail passed between an outcropping of lava and the water. Evidently, this is one hell of an ambush spot where the Modoc laid in wait for hapless immigrants in the 1850s. But did they ever kill 60 to 90 men, women, and children in one fell swoop? It's highly doubtful. A much more realistic number that I was able to find comes from an article I'll link to in the show notes, one with actual citations, that makes the much more realistic claim of 36 migrants being killed there at Bloody Point in 1852. And that was for the entire year. Many attacks over many months against many different small wagon trains, resulting in over three dozen deaths. Now that is much more believable, at least to me. I just want to make it clear that I don't doubt that the Modoc were killing a lot of white people during the early 1850s. They were absolutely attacking wagon trains and probably any lone travelers that they could find. That is not in dispute. Okay, I'm not trying to make the Modoc out to be a bunch of innocent little angels here. I also want to make it clear that there were a lot of exaggerated claims made during this time. And oftentimes the Modoc soon found themselves getting blamed for things they didn't even do. One such incident involved a band of the Pitt River tribe running off with a large herd of prospector horses, a theft that resulted in several Modoc being killed at the hands of the notorious Benjamin Wright. And boy, oh boy, talk about throwing gasoline on a fire, as if things weren't already bad enough. The Indiana-born and Quaker-raised Wright would soon drift west in 1847 in hopes of striking it rich, just like every other young man bound for California. He soon discovered, however, that his real skill set, and evidently sense of joy, lay in killing natives. He was part of the militia that helped put down the Cayuse Rebellion, I briefly mentioned earlier, that resulted in Reverend Whitman's death. But Ben Wright wasn't just killing for the sake of killing. Keep in mind there was a bounty system in place there in California back in them days. 
Depending on where you were located, you could get paid $5 for an Indian's severed head or 25 cents per scalp. And to further exasperate matters, the government of California handed out $1.5 million, the equivalent of $58 million in today's money, to fund local militias led by guys just like Ben Wright. And oh, did Ben Wright collect his fair share of bounties. Heads, scalps, fingers, noses, ears. Some he collected as proof just to get paid, while others were grim trophies. Kept him a couple of native women as slaves as well. You can only imagine the hell those gals went through. Not long after he and his men attacked the Modoc in retaliation for the stolen horses and mules, Wright returned to the area, once again attacking a Modoc village. Creeping in close under the cover of darkness, the vigilantes waited until first light to open up on the waking natives, killing over a dozen according to one source. Shortly thereafter, they attacked another village, killing 15 more. The following summer, Ben returned, this time he and his posse intervening during a wagon train attack, thwarting the assault and killing somewhere around 30 warriors in the process. Which begs the question, what came first, whites killing Modoc or Modoc killing whites? I got a feeling that Ben Wright felt justified in killing the Modoc when and where he could find them, based solely on the fact that they were attacking wagon trains. And the Modoc likely felt justified in attacking these trains based on the actions of people like Ben Wright. And on and on it goes. For the next couple of months, Wright and company occupied themselves by escorting wagon trains through the area, offering up their services as protectors. And you better believe they killed as many Modoc as they could find. One gruesome story has Wright and his men gunning down two Modoc women that they saw running for shelter. One was killed outright and the other simply wounded in the arm. Ben dismounted, approached the injured lady, and sank his knife into her. And then came Ben Wright's masterpiece, his magnus opus, the feather in his hat, if you will. The massacre that still bears his name. The killer sent word to the Modoc that he wanted to make peace, even hoisted up a white flag to show his pure intentions. And the Modoc came in, peacefully, honoring that flag of truce. They camped out there with Wright and his men in the rain for several days looking to negotiate and hopefully come to some sort of an agreement. Hell, there was even a big feast. If you call a whole bunch of food, laced with strychnine, meant to kill as many Modoc as possible, a feast. This plot quickly fell apart, though, as the poison didn't seem to work. Evidently, it had expired or just gone bad, so Ben simply walked up to the head Modoc, pulled out a pair of dragoons from under his poncho, and commenced a firing. Wright's posse, all armed, opened up fire as well. Now, lest you think I'm being biased here, there are some that say neither side's intentions were as pure as the driven snow. One version has it that Wright and his men called the parlay in hopes of retrieving a couple of captured women from the Modoc. When they discovered that the natives were planning on double-crossing them, they simply acted first, kicking off the fight and gaining the upper hand. And hell, who knows, maybe both sides showed up looking to kill the other. Maybe that was the plan from the get-go and Ben just happened to act first. Either way, the result saw zero of Ben Wright's men killed, with the Modoc suffering 30 to 90 fatalities, one of which is rumored to have been Captain Jack's father. And whatever the true start of the fight, even one participant on Wright's side, a William Thompson, admitted to how gruesome it was. As the first shot rang out from Wright's pistol, his men opened a deadly fire with their rifles. For an instant, the savages formed a line and sent a shower of arrows over their heads, but they aimed too high and only one or two were slightly wounded. Dropping their rifles, Wright's men charged, revolvers in hand. 
This was too much for savage valor, and what were left fled in terror. It was no longer a battle. The savages were searched out from among the sagebrush and shot like rabbits. Long poles were taken from the wikiups, and those taking refuge in the river were poked out and shot as they struggled in the water. To avoid the bullets, the Indians would dive and swim beneath the water, but watching the bubbles rise as they swam, the men shot them when they came up for air. End quote. And so it went. Over the course of just 25 years, it's estimated that hundreds of Modoc were killed and that they dispatched nearly an equal number of migrants and settlers. I guess it would be safe to say that both sides could give just as well as they could get. Almost. One thing I'd like to point out here is that it wasn't just the Modoc getting a raw deal there in California. The state did officially have a policy of wholesale extermination when it came to all tribes. We're talking state-sponsored death squads, operate under full support of the law, killing indiscriminately and without repercussion. To quote the first governor of California, Peter Burnett, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the races until the Indian race becomes extinct must be expected. End of quote. This is the same guy who would also block negotiation treaties if he felt like they were being too generous to the indigenous, by the way. Just to put things into context, the Native American population of California was estimated at about 150,000 people in 1848, right around the time that gold was discovered. A quarter of a century later, when the Modoc War kicked off, you're looking at less than 30,000. And that's for the entire state. A lot of that was disease, yeah. Even the Modoc suffered horribly from smallpox. Still, though, even with all the various plagues wrecking havoc on the tribes, they still weren't dying off fast enough as far as many people, even those in office, were concerned. That's where the bounties and the massacres and the rampant killing came into play. What some consider to be a genocide. So hopefully now you're getting some sort of an idea of the environment that Captain Jack was born into. From the late 1820s leading up to his birth and for his entire childhood, his people had been aware of, and sometimes the target of, awful atrocities. Far out of the scope and range of what they themselves had done or were capable of, even when it came to their most bitter enemies. A very volatile situation predicated by decades of violence and retribution killings that one would only assume would have turned Captain Jack into an American-hating maniac, hell-bent on taking up the torch and continuing to fight his oppressors. And well, if this was the impression you had of Captain Jack and his band of Modoc, you'd be wrong. Especially if you were to ask the citizens of Wairika, California, shortly before the Modoc War began. Jack and his band were frequent visitors of the mining town. Some took up odd jobs there, they shopped in Wairika stores, even attended holiday celebrations with the townsfolk. Hell, during one such celebration, in 1871 on the 4th of July, the town caught on fire and Jack and his Modoc helped put the inferno out. And it was the white miners and citizens of Wairika what gave Jack his captain moniker, on account of an old soldier's brass button jacket that he often wore. In Jack's own words, quote, I consider myself as a white man. End quote. So what exactly went wrong? How did Captain Jack and his Modoc go from wearing the white man's clothes and shopping in the stores of Wairika to a bloody war with the United States Army in the lava beds of Northern California? Tensions and hostilities between Modoc and migrants continued even after Ben Wright's massacre until a sort of peace was agreed upon between the tribe and the settlers in the late 1850s. 
Then, in 1864, the U.S. government stepped in and signed a peace treaty not just with the Modoc, but the Klamath and neighboring Yahuskin band of northern Paiute as well. This treaty saw the formation of the Klamath Reservation in present-day southern Oregon. The tribes would give up all of their land south of the 44 parallel, which included every square inch of Modoc ancestral land, and agree to live together on the aforementioned reservation. This meant the Modoc would be living with their enemies, the Klamath, who just so happened to outnumber them. As you can figure, this caused a whole new set of problems, namely the Klamath buggering, bullying, and abusing their new next-door neighbors. Now, in return for giving up all that land, the Modoc were promised one big lump-sum payment, along with future annuities of money and food. These, of course, were slow in coming at first, and then just stopped altogether. About a year or so later, the Modoc tired of such living conditions and simply left the reservation, returning south to their own territory. Government was persistent, however. Like an abusive spouse, they claimed that they'd make everything better, that they'd change. Come on, just come on back. We'll protect you from the mean old Klamath. I won't hit you no more. We'll give you food. Come on back. So the Modoc did, and things, of course, did not change. Finally, in 1870, after asking for help from the government over and over and over again, after pleading with officials for better conditions, after being forced to eat their own horses, a band of 50 Modoc men, along with their women and children, left the reservation under the leadership of a young Captain Jack. They returned back to their homeland around Tule Lake and Lost River, oftentimes making the trip west to Wairika, where, like I said, they were generally well-received and well-behaved. There were still altercations, but none of them seemed to be of the serious sort. You know, there were no wagon trains being attacked, no massacres, nothing like that. All of the problems seemed to stem around trespassing or petty theft, maybe a little bit of intimidation or even irritation. According to one Indian agent, the Modoc were, quote, insolent. And if they wanted flour or beef, they'd find the nearest settler and demand it. Furthermore, sometimes a dozen or so would just walk into a cabin and insist on being fed. And after dining on the free food, they'd sit around the fireplace smoking as if they owned the place. So yeah, I can see how that would be pretty damn irritating. You know, talk about your neighbor from hell. But this ain't exactly a raid by the Comanche either. For what it's worth, Captain Jack did work with the settlers, even if he was charging them money for using the land. He himself would occasionally find work in the town of Wairika, while other Modoc became ranch hands. I mean, they really did seem willing to adapt, even cutting their hair short and wearing white man's clothes. You know, obviously they weren't all that hated. But still, as good as things might have been in Wairika, there were plenty of other folks there in Northern California that were uncomfortable having the Modoc roaming free and more than a bit covetous of their land. Now, it's worth pointing out that the Modoc weren't against the idea of living on a reservation. They just wanted their own reservation on their own land, somewhere near the Lost River. Also keep in mind that Jack and his Modoc weren't on the run or hiding during this period. They were just there where they had always been, living their best lives. The Indian agents and the government knew exactly where they were, and there were more than a couple of sit-down talks and parlays with Jack trying to secure their own reservation while the government men tried talking him back up to the Klamath region. Didn't help none, of course, that Jack committed murder around this same time, at least in the eyes of his white neighbors. One of Captain Jack's children became seriously ill, so he turned to a Modoc medicine man to heal the kid. Well, the kid didn't get better and sadly soon passed away, prompting Jack to kill said medicine man. Now, this was culturally acceptable among the Modoc. It was expected. Not so much with the Americans. 
A murder warrant was issued for Captain Jack, but nothing ever came of it as the reservation issue was first and foremost on everybody's mind. Finally, in 1872, Indian agent Thomas O'Donnell gave orders dispatching the military to use whatever force necessary to get the Modoc back on the reservation. As such, 35 men of the 1st Cavalry, stationed out of Fort Klamath, under the command of a Captain James Jackson, were sent south to deal with the Modoc, picking up about a dozen or so civilians as they headed that way. Civilians who may or may not have had a little bit too much to drink in the town of Linkville the night before. Linkville, of course, is now known as Klamath Falls. Now, orders were clearly given to resolve things peacefully, if at all possible. Indian agent Odinell instructed Captain Jackson in part, quote, If there is to be any fighting, let the Indians be the aggressors. Fire no gun, except in self-defense. End quote. The next morning, November 29th, was bitterly cold, as the combined force of 45 or so men approached the Modoc camp on Lost River. There were two camps, actually. One on the west side of the river, just north of Tule Lake, was Jack's Village. Directly across on the east side was the camp of Hooker Jim, another Modoc leader who you'll soon hear much, much more about. Along with another feller named Scarface Charlie. Old Scarface sees the soldiers coming and fires off a shot, likely to warn his fellow tribesmen. Captain Jack, supposedly, was waiting in his lodge as the soldiers approached thinking that this was going to be another peaceful meeting and that the officers would soon be joining him to talk, as they had previously done. Meanwhile, the soldiers quickly enter the village and set up a skirmish line, while at the same time the Modoc warriors are preparing to fight, stripping off their clothes and instructing the women and children to lie down on the ground, I assume to keep them out of the line of fire. The interpreter, a son of one of them Applegate trailblazing brothers, sees this for what it is and runs out of the camp hollering that the Modoc are about to attack. Captain Jackson of the 1st Cavalry then orders his lieutenant, guy by the name of Frazier Boutel, to disarm and arrest Scarface Charlie. Only thing is, Scarface ain't having it. He resists as both men go for their guns, firing at the same time. Charlie's rifle blasts in a hole through Lieutenant Boutel's coat sleeve while the officer's pistol grazes the bandana covering Charlie's head. Neither men were injured, but the damage was done and the fight was on. The first shots of the Modoc War had been fired, and a course set in motion that no man could stop. And that's about all I've got for this episode, part one of the Modoc War. Hate to leave you with a cliffhanger, but sometimes that's just how it be. Please, please, please join me in two weeks as we discuss what happens next. The Lava Pits, aka Jack's Stronghold. The Battles of Sand Butte and Dry Lake. General Canby. We'll also take a closer look at some of our main characters, Scarface Charlie, Sanchin John, Hooker Jim, guy by the name of Shaq Nasty, and a lady Modoc named Kachikona, who you may or may not know as Wynema. Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks to all my supporters on Patreon and YouTube. Thank you, thank you. Big thanks to all you who contribute via Buy Me a Coffee. Head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button. Or feel free to contact me direct at josh at wildwestextra.com. All right, I'll see you in two weeks. Adios.
won't hit you no more. We'll give you food. Come on back. 